a dangerous assault, and new political concerns. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Ms. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband is violently attacked by a man who broke into her home looking for her. Plus... They're determined to cut Social Security and Medicare, and they're willing to take down the economy over it. And with just days to go before Election Day, Democrats begin warning that a GOP-controlled Congress could bring economic instability. Just more, more lies from the Democrats. What the Democrats want to do here is avoid talking about the inflation. Meanwhile, Republicans lean into fears of a recession and hope inflation concerns deliver a red wave. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. We begin with disturbing news. This morning, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was hospitalized after a man broke into their San Francisco home around 2 a.m. and violently attacked him with a hammer. The alleged intruder, identified as David DePoppy, shouted at Paul Pelosi, quote, where is Nancy? He is expected to be charged with attempted homicide. This incident comes as Election Day is just 11 days away. Joining me now to discuss this and more, Zolin Kali Youngs, White House correspondent for The New York Times, Scott McFarlane, congressional correspondent for CBS News, and Ashley Parker, senior national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you all for being here. Scott, I'm going to start with you. We've learned some new details especially that Paul Pelosi called 911 himself. What's the latest of what we're hearing about this and the possible motives here? Let's be clear. This is a grotesque set of allegations that this 42-year-old accused in this attack not only broke into the Pelosi home, but used a hammer to break into the house and to hit the skull of the 82-year-old husband of the House Speaker, also injuring Mr. Pelosi's arm and his right hand. Surgery was successful. The skull fractures have been... Uh, acted upon, and they're expecting a full recovery at the medical center at the San Francisco General Hospital. It's a grotesque set of accusations, but something else jumps out at me as grotesque. The parallels, the symmetry to what we saw 21 months ago. In this case, the investigators familiar with this case say that this accused assailant was saying, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Intended to tie up her husband on January 6th. Any number of those rioters were chanting, Where's Nancy? Nancy, we're coming to get you, bringing makeshift weapons, including at least one hammer on January 6th. And it, it just raises the question, is this a snapshot of where we are in America in 2022? Is that where our politics are? That this is both shocking but not surprising at all? It's, it's a critical question. Is this where we are? And I want to also point out that there, the threats against lawmakers have been rising in recent years. Um, just today, a man named Joshua Hall, who threatened to kill Representative Rick Eric Swalwell, he pleaded guilty to those charges. And then you have reporting that the Capitol Police has now begun a review of security of lawmakers. I wonder when you're thinking about all of this, what's the impact of this attack possibly on the future of the security of lawmakers? And what are you hearing about Capitol Hill police trying to keep people safe? Let me give you one number to start with. 10,000 threat investigations in one year for U.S. Capitol Police. And that's an increase from a few years ago. That's a dramatic increase from a few years ago. In the near term, Capitol Police are likely to expand the protection of the dignitaries, the people in leadership, those who have very significant threats against them. The January 6th committee members have had extra security. They may expand that to spouses and family in the wake 
of this attack against Mr. Pelosi. But there's a broader question. There's a finite number of officers. There's a finite number of resources. They've got about 2,000 employees, got about a half billion dollar a year budget. But members of Congress live everywhere. They're not just at the Capitol. There's only so much space and bandwidth they can cover. Yeah. And, and Zolan, we are hearing from President Biden. He's saying enough is enough, calling this despicable. We're also hearing and, and learning that David DePoppy, this man, that he espoused all sorts of sort of conspiracy theories about COVID-19, about the 2020 election. I wonder what your sources are telling you, especially national security mm. sources, about how all of this comes together and the, and the ongoing threats of 2022. And I know you got your hands on some hot new reporting for us about this sort of warnings that we're hearing in 2022. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just today, uh, federal law enforcement was circulating um, a threat assessment that really states what has been a heightened uh, risk for political violence that has ex existed since January 6th. Since January 6th, you've seen DHS, FBI issue multiple warnings saying specifically that false claims about the election, um, the current political rhetoric, the current state of divisiveness, uh, that it could encourage people to commit the sort of attacks like we saw today. Now, this bulletin does not specifically detail uh, the attack on Mr. Pelosi, I should say that. But what it does recite and summarize is previous attacks against members of Congress and also saying ahead of the midterm elections that government officials as well as election workers could be at risk of further attacks by domestic extremists that continue to be motivated by those same false claims. This is the current security environment, this current threat environment that we're in. My colleagues have also uh, reported that members of Congress fearing attacks like this have spent about $6 million dipping into their own campaign funds, their official budgets as well, just to pay for their own security. The neighbor of the Pelosi's in San Francisco noted today that Sure, there's a security detail uh, uh, for Speaker Pelosi, but she's in Washington today. And what happens also to the relatives of these members of Congress when members have to come back to D.C. to do their job? Both you're hearing it from federal law enforcement, you're hearing it from members of Congress as well. There's still a concern here, and the dangers and the risk that we saw in the wake of the attack on the Capitol have not subsided. And I keep thinking about, what if Nancy Pelosi was home? What would, if, what would this story would be so different, possibly? Possibly if that man had seen what he was looking for, Zolan. I mean, there were people that were wondering what if there was no rush to get members of Congress out of the Capitol on the day of January 6th. That same language was being used. We remember when Speaker Pelosi's office was also ransacked that day as well. Um, Based off of what's being reported, this person went in there and was specifically looking for the speaker. And we know not only did he intend to commit harm, but he did also commit harm at that point. It just so happened she was in Washington. That's scary stuff, Ashley. Um, and we've heard from Republicans. We've heard from Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy saying that they're wishing Paul Pelosi a, a speedy recovery. I also want to point out something that the, that the Virginia governor, Glenn Youngkin, said. He's, he was out campaigning today, and I want to quote from him directly. He said, Speaker Pelosi's husband had a break-in last night in their house, and he was assaulted. There is no room for violence anywhere. But, he said, we're going to send her back with him to California. That's what we're going to do. We've covered all sorts of sort of attacks and, 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 and charged rhetoric. But I wonder what you make of what the governor is saying and the sort of political atmosphere that we're living through right now. Well, I would add it's not just the governor of Virginia in that but is sort of crucial because that was a through line in a number, not all, but in a number of Republican statements and tweets today. It was sort of 
violence is never acceptable. But there was a local Ohio representative who, in a series of tweets, you know, said he hopes Paul Pelosi makes a full recovery. Violence isn't acceptable. But, and then seeming to mock the calls of some liberals and liberal lawmakers to defund the police, said, you know, but in a tweet, I, I sure hope that San Francisco sends their finest social worker um, to respond to the attack at the Pelosi household. Um, and even Marjorie Taylor Greene, who before she ran for Congress, uh, accused Nancy Pelosi of treason and seemed to suggest that she should be executed for treason. Um, she put out a tweet later today saying, again, you know, no, no excuse for violence, it's unacceptable. But let's remember all the times that I've been under attack. And so when you see violence like this on either side, it feels like the sort of normal, traditional thing is just a, this is unacceptable, full stop. Not this is unacceptable, snarky comment about her husband, snarky comment about liberal policies, you know, snarky both sides-ism. Um, but that was one thing that struck me in a number of the Republican responses we saw today. And as someone who's sort of been traveling, Scott, across this country, both of us, I keep thinking about just the fact that rhetoric really does have consequences. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, we look at Twitter and we look at these sort of exchanges, but people's lives can be at risk because there are people who will take this too far and will see the butt that Ashley's talking about as a sort of invitation for violence here. I'm also thinking about what's going on in Arizona, which is that there is a lawsuit going on because there's some worry that people are now staking out drop boxes. I even interviewed a voter who told me that he was going to be at mail drop boxes with his ice pack and his ice um, his ice cooler and his shotgun, his firearm, because he's, a, he's someone who doesn't believe that the 2020 election was fair. What are you hearing about the sort of intimidation of voters and election workers as we're heading closer and closer to election day. Let's start with what we hear from the experts. The 2020, oh, by the way, was the safest, most secure election in American history and done during a pandemic, which is a Herculean accomplishment. So all these claims, these baseless claims of fraud come in the wake of a very successful, uniquely successful election. So here we are with people monitoring drop boxes, a way to make it easier for people to vote. Monitoring the Dropbox, doing so armed or in an intimidating fashion, makes it maybe harder for some people to want to vote. It's a disincentive. And that goes back to the previous point. If we hear about concerns that polling places might be targeted, election workers, administrators might be targeted, the fear is not just that they'll be targeted, but just the warning will be a disincentive for people to vote. It's voter suppression. So now we have a balancing act. We have people monitoring drop boxes. We want to alert folks to that. We have people who may be targeting extremist groups, targeting polling places. We want to notify people about that, but we don't want to dissuade people from voting. Millions have voted already in 2022. So far, it's been all safe. And I just wanted to go back to something you said in asking him that question about rhetoric having consequences. For someone like Speaker Pelosi, you can really draw a through line for the past decade. In 2010, right after Obamacare passed, um, there was a campaign by Republicans, by the Republican National Committee called Fire Pelosi. Um, and it sort of, in, there were images of her engulfed in kind of Hades-like flames. And that was the first iteration, right? She's been vilified and demonized ever since this election cycle already. Um, Republicans have spent, she's the number one most vilified member of Congress in ads. Republicans have spent $80 million running 300 different unique ads attacking her. And then uh, 
McCarthy, um, the Republican leader, about a year ago was sort of making a quote-unquote joke, and he said he couldn't wait to get the gavel from Nancy Pelosi, but it would be hard not to hit her with it. Wow. And so when you look at that, what we saw last night feels like an almost all-but-inevitable conclusion of the past 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's scary stuff. I also want to turn, of course, as we as we talk about sort of get McCarthy possibly getting the gavel, um, I want to turn to the midterm countdown, which is also, a part, of course, part of this. Already, more than 12 million Americans have cast ballots in early voting, and President Biden and Democrats are shifting their closing argument and warning more than ever that the GOP, that if the GOP wins control of Congress, the party would gut Medicare and Social Security, shut down the government, and send the economy into a tailspin. Here's President Biden in upstate New York on Thursday. If Kevin gets his way in the Republican Congress, tax credits to lower energy bills, gone. Corporate minimum tax, gone. Under the Republican plan, some big corporations are going to go back to paying zero again. That's the plan. I would argue it's reckless and irresponsible and will make inflation worse if they succeed. Meanwhile, economic data released this week showed encouraging growth but slowing consumer spending. That mixed news comes as Republicans are hoping for a red wave, with GOP candidates arguing that they're better suited to fight inflation. Here's Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, who is running for re-election against Democrat Charlie Crist during a debate Monday. Well, we know that these are the effects of the Biden-Crist policies, the worst inflation in 40 years. And Charlie Chris votes with Biden 100% of the time. And he says that Biden is the best president he's ever seen. And joining our conversation is Amara Amokwe. She's an economics reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being here, Amara. And I want to start with just what are you hearing from econom economics, sorry, economists, rather, about where we're heading, what, what's going on with the, with the report that was released this week and how that squares with, what, with the political messaging that we're hearing? Right. So the GDP report did show growth for the third quarter, and that was welcome news because we did have economic contraction in the first two quarters of this year. But as you mentioned, consumer spending did slow, and economists were talking about that because consumer spending is such a key driver for the economy. And we also saw other signs that the economy is slowing in that report. For instance, residential residential investment was down very sharply as well. And that is just reflective of what the Federal Reserve is doing. You know, they have been lifting interest rates and that has really had an impact on the housing market. We've seen mortgage rates really spike. We've seen a slowdown in home sales. We've seen home prices start to come down. And so the question is, is that slowdown going to spread to other parts of the economy? Are we going to start to see higher unemployment? Are we going to start to see more pain in other parts of the economy? And many economists, a number of economists do expect that what the Fed is doing will cause a recession in, in the first half of 2023. And Amira, I also want to ask you about some reporting that you've done for the Wall Street Journal about Black voters in particular, who of course are a key constituency for Democrats. You, you talked to them about their concerns. That of course includes um, the economy, abortion, social issues. What are you learning about what black voters in particular are concerned about and how that sort of um, is connected to, to what Democrats want to do here in the midterms? Right. So the, reporting that story was really interesting because we looked at survey data. And what we found was that black Americans were saying that 
some social issues like public safety and abortion were just as important to them as uh, the economy and inflation as they consider their vote uh, this fall, whereas the broader electorate places a much heavier emphasis on the economy and inflation. So those, those were just sort of really, those results just kind of really struck us. And when we were talking to voters in Georgia, we heard the same thing. We heard voters talk about gun violence and how that was just as important as what we're seeing with these elevated prices. And I asked an economist about that. I said, you know, what could be driving that dynamic? And he said, you know, you, we have to remember where Black Americans were at the beginning of the pandemic. We saw Black unemployment spike to near 17%. Fast forward to now, we have Black unemployment down under 6%. We've seen income growth for Black Americans. We've seen labor force participation really improve for Black Americans. And so those kinds of gains could be shaping sort of how they view the economy and how they weigh these other social issues that are pressing in society right now. Yeah. And Zolan, I want to I want to come to you because obviously the president and Democrats are shifting their measures. They've always sort of talked about Republicans uh, and, and the, the fears that they have over Social Security and Medicare, but now they've really beefed that up. What's behind this shift in, in tone and in, in messaging? And how much of a difference can it make if 12 million people have already voted? Yeah, the White House would say that they've been talking about trying to lower the deficit for, for months now and, and, um, and that they've often talked about, pointed to job growth in the wake of each report pointing to soaring inflation. But but we are seeing a little bit of a change in focus, right? I mean, early in the summer, particularly after the Dobbs decision, you saw, and Democrats would tell you, the White House officials would tell you, allies of the White House, that the Democratic Party looked at that decision as a galvanizing moment, a moment to energize the base. Recent polls have indicated that even in, especially in places like battleground states, Nevada um, as well, uh, you know, you still have um, Ohio too. The economy tends to be the top concern right now. The New, York, uh, my, the New York Times as well issued a poll saying that the economy does tend to be the top concern for voters. Now look, voters are complex as well, and you can care about a lot of different issues and policies at yeah. this point. But there was an interesting uh, schedule two weeks ago for the president where one day he was in DC, he made a speech saying he would codify uh, row. Um, it was right here in Washington, D.C. And I remember there was some criticism, or not criticism, but some questions from uh, observers of, you know, should the White House continue to be focusing on this issue uh, when, when the economy is still such a concern for voters? The very next day you also saw, and it was pre-planned, but the next day you saw Biden talk about uh, uh, gas prices yeah. and going into the strategic petroleum preserves in order to try and make an impact on gas prices. So you are seeing the White House conscious of what the polls indicate now, that yes, people obviously are concerned about the, the Supreme Court decision, particularly in the Democratic Party, but you can be concerned about multiple issues at this point, inflation well, among them. Well, in talking about multiple issues you'd be concerned about, Scott, I know that you went in deep on Virginia in particular, and Elaine Luria, who was, of course, a member of the January 6th committee. Tell me a little bit about what she told you about the political stakes there, and, and, and how does that dovetail or connect with what you're hearing from other Democrats? There are any number of dozens of House Democrats trying to hold on to their seats this cycle in very competitive races in some cases. And some of the issues are all kind of the same in every district. They're arguing about abortion rights, about economy, gas prices, grocery prices. This one has an asterisk. It's different. In the Virginia 2nd District by Virginia Beach, Elaine Laurie is trying to hold her seat, but she has a national profile now. She was on the January 6th committee. She gained notoriety across the country. And two things were clear covering her close election race. One. 
she is far more recognizable in her district than before when she was on that committee. Even among her constituents, she's better known now. Second thing is, it's far from clear any voters care. She's mentioning this. She's asked about this during debates. She mentions it on the stump. But she recognizes it is a grocery price kind of world right now for voters. That is a pernicious issue. Hits you every Saturday morning at the checkout, and it's hard to get past that. So she is balancing and calibrating her speeches accordingly. Let's see if she transcends what other Democrats experience because she has that high profile of trying to protect democracy. I find it just as interesting what, to this point, what candidates are not talking about at this point, um, at just as what they are talking about. Um, my colleague, Jim Tankersley, went to Georgia, and he noted how you've had allies of the White House, allies of President Biden, saying hey, throughout the year, you know, we've reported this too, throughout the year, hey, you passed a stimulus package. You passed infrastructure. You now got Inflation Reduction Act, lowering prescription drug prices. Chips you guys should be chips. You guys right. should be out talking about these Burn things, talking about, about these plans <laughs> for the economy. But there's an interesting catch-22 in a way, because some of those same policies are being pointed at by, by critics as fueling inflation yeah. as well, particularly the stimulus package. So it's interesting. You know, in Georgia, you had a debate between uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. The economy at one point was barely mentioned. And Jim yeah. even asked Raphael Warnock about the stimulus package and child tax credit, which do have the approval and support of so many voters. And there was a pivot directly to Roe and abortion. Well, as we're talking about this, I want to put up a map for you, Ashley. It is showing where all the former presidents the last three are going to be. You have Biden, Obama, and Trump going. You have you have Biden, if we can put it up for folks. We have Biden in Pennsylvania and Florida. Obama going to Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, um, Pennsylvania. You have Trump in Iowa, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio. You have also, apart from this map, Chuck Schumer was caught on a hot mic talking about <laughs> yeah. sort of the, candidly what's going on here. What are you hearing from your sources about how much difference these stories can make and whether or not Chuck Schumer's right and that they're really having some big problems, especially in a place like Georgia? Well, what we're hearing is that Democrats would have loved to have the election about six weeks to two months ago because they had this really phenomenal stretch, uh, part based on work that the Biden team had done for months and part out of things that were outside of their control, like the Dobbs decision. No Democrat would have hoped for it, but it was incredibly politically galvanizing, right? Then you had fruition, uh, co coming to fruition, the series of bills that Zolan just cited that, again, they happened over the summer. They happened when you get the votes, but this was started many months ago. You had the killing of al-Zawahiri, which made Biden's case that you could withdraw troops from Afghanistan and yeah. still maintain a security presence there. This would have been a good time for the election for Democrats. But things have now started to shift back. Of course, Democrats are thrilled to see surrogates out on the campaign trail, especially someone like former President Obama. Um, but, but the real issue, going back to what we were talking about, that has been a through line really for the past year when you ask Democrats even privately, is inflation. Yeah. Nothing else matters when you are driving down the street and every gas station you pass, each sign for the price of gas is a signpost about how frustrated you are as a voter about rising prices. And uh, Amir, I want to ask you and get you in here. We have about a minute left here, but I want to get you in, which is there's inflation is a global problem. How much do voters really talk about that? And what more do we know about whether or not the Fed can, and, and their steps that they're supposed to be taking, how that's going to impact this in the U.S.? 
Well, yeah, inflation is a global problem, and you do hear the Biden administration mentioning that from time to time, that these high prices that we have are not a uniquely you know, U.S. problem. Um, the Fed is going to meet next week, and they are expected to do another large interest rate hike. And then I think what people will be looking for is where does the Fed go from there? Will they start to slow the pace of those interest rate increases? Will they start to sort of uh, assess more whether what they have already done is, is working as they intend? But the Fed has been very clear that their priority is bringing down inflation even if it um, causes some pain for the economy. And you do see Democrats increasingly becoming, becoming more and more vocal and asking the Fed to sort of think about of what they're doing and think about whether they're being too aggressive because the, the concern is that they might do too much and slow the economy too much to the point where we do get a recession. And Scott, in the 10 seconds we have left, what do you think of Schumer's hot mic moment and what are you hearing from lawmakers about the realities here? Let me be clear, we love hot mic moments. We encourage <laughs> we them. Economy is driving. Ashley's right. If they had this election August 23rd, Democrats would be far more optimistic. And are they optimistic when you hear that from them? Cautiously, um, <laughs> but emphasis on cautiously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Republicans I, I talked to, they're confident, but, you know, all things can change and Democrats are definitely trying to fight. And it'll be interesting to see everyone hit the campaign trail in the next 11 days. So thanks so much to our panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And before we go, tune in Saturday to PBS News Weekend. The show will look at the historic Israel-Lebanon maritime deal signed by nations technically still at war. I also finally want to say that I am hoping for a full recovery for Paul Pelosi. I know it's very, very hard on his family and that it's a very tough time for them. So my heart and my mind is definitely with them. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night from Washington.